0: From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. Nearly 20% of the members of the General Assembly belong to the Rhode Island Black, Latino, Indigenous, Asian American, and Pacific Islander Caucus. Here to tell us about the group's priorities this session is the caucus co-chair, Senator Jonathan Acosta from Central Falls. Welcome Senator Acosta. Thanks for having me. So last time we touched base, the 21 member caucus was planning to meet in January to talk about its priorities for the 2024 legislative session. So give us an idea of some of the major pieces of legislation the group will be advocating for this year
1: sure so so we have a few domains housing and homeless support support for communities and small businesses support for students environmental justice civil rights and public safety you know these are the kind of high big level buckets but when we get more into the weeds you know when we go back to housing we're looking back at you know what happens with the security deposit what are the rights that you have as a tenant we're looking at child care is essential legislation we're looking at payday lending we're looking at ripTA funding uh, when it comes to support for all students we're still concerned about breakfast, and lunch. We're still concerned about by support for bilingual education, and we're looking at mental health priorities for our students, civil rights and public safety. You know, It's hard to talk about that without mentioning Leah Boer. That's arguably one of the most contentious issues. Um, but we're also looking at things like same-day voting. So these are things that people have put on the table. We are still going to have to have the meeting and then decide ultimately
0: what's going to make it to our final draft. So, the yeah, the caucus hasn't voted on a legislative priority list yet?
1: No, and, and just to give people a, an idea of, of why and what the timeline for some of this looks like is, we have until the middle slash end of February to submit bills. And so it would be kind of unfair to put our priority list before folks have had the opportunity to get their bills drafted. And one of the things that my co-chair Felix and I have really focused in on is saying, look, if you're gonna have a bill on your priority list, there has to be a companion bill on both sides. Like we know how this game is played. We know how this process works. In the past, people have said, well, we have House bill this or Senate bill that, but there was no sponsor, nobody championing that on the other side. And so the odds of getting it passed were very low. (laughs) And so recognizing that we've kind of come out and said from the beginning, if a bill is gonna make it on our policy agenda, you have to have a sponsor on both sides. We don't care who it is. It doesn't have to be a caucus member. But the bills need to look like each other so they have
0: actual potential of getting passed. I believe this is the most diverse General Assembly Rhode Island's ever had with 21 members in the caucus. But do you feel like it's changing the culture up on Smith Hill? A little bit. I mean, some of it is is cohort change as well,
1: right? So it happens to be that some of us are from communities of color, that there are more women than there were in the past. And that certainly plays a role. But it's also that we're younger, and that's changing things a bit, right? I think our understanding of politics or the assumptions that people go in with sometimes impact how they view or perceive something. You know, one thing that's bothered me that happened recently was I had a conversation with someone about a piece of legislation or policy, and they approached it in a very transactional way that turned me off. So their first response was, Well, how do you feel about my bill? I'm not gonna tell you, or I'm not gonna support your stuff till you tell me about it. And I thought that was bullshit, right? Like that felt like it was three, four decades ago, because we want to talk about the merits of this on its own and then, you know, present the merits of whatever it is that you want me to support for you. But that person happens to be an older white man who very clearly comes from that generation, right? That's not to say all older white men are like that. I've found many who are not, <laughs> and, and 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 I'll defend them for that. But I think that as we have younger people, as we have people who come from different backgrounds, who are experiencing different lived experiences or going through different lived experiences, then it starts slowly changing the culture.
0: So you mentioned Leobor. That's a law enforcement officer's bill of rights. It's the state law that dictates how police departments deal with police officer misconduct. Why hasn't anything changed in the past three years that this has been on the radar?
1: Well, so without getting too high level or philosophical about it, I'll say that you need a crisis in order to change things, Right. And so we've had these slow crises building up. Uh, We've had national attention paid to law enforcement reform. We've had state attention paid to law enforcement reform. I think that's
0: building the pressure to actually get something done, but it's taken time. The Senate just voted on January 25th, 35 to 0, for a bill that would make changes to Leah Board. Why did you vote for that bill, and what's the main change it would make?
1: So I said this in the hearing in the Judiciary Committee, as the chair of the caucus, while we've been unable to determine which bill we support, we know that something has to be done. So the place where we have unanimous agreement is that the status quo is not okay. There are a few places where this bill makes fundamental changes. In some cases, not far enough for what we would like to see, but just to highlight high level some of the things that it does. One is it increases the amount of summary punishment that a police chief can issue. And so right now, one of the issues that we've had is a lot of the cases that are heard by a Leobor panel are what some folks would call these like ticky tacky soft cases, things that are not very serious or egregious. And part of that is because you can only suspend an officer for two days without pay, without kicking this in. And so if someone is late too many times, if someone is out of uniform too many times, simple things like that, depending on how long a chief decides to suspend a, a police officer, could automatically trigger a labor hearing. And so what we've heard in the past is, well, most of the cases are simple. This is not really egregious stuff. The stuff that you see on TV, those are the extreme cases. And so by lifting the amount of time that you can punish somebody to now 14 days, at the 15th day, you would trigger a Leah You're going to get rid of a lot of these small, ticky-tacky cases. It also changes the board composition. So right now, the board is made up of three officers that are chosen One by the police chief, one by the officer themselves, and one that's mutually agreed on. This would move it to a five person panel that would include a retired judge and the executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Practice of Nonviolence. It also removes the gag order from police chiefs and the accused officers themselves. So right now people can't talk about the allegations, which can often lead to a very frustrated public and a frustrated group of victims. And it makes data publicly accessible. So one of my frustrations with these claims that most of the cases were tiki tacky cases is that no one could produce data or statistics to say this percentage of cases is that. This percentage of cases, the officer has been found guilty, right? There's no public way to really access this. Most versions of the bill that I've seen so far do require that the state start keeping track of this and report it to um, a federal clearinghouse of data for police misconduct.
0: You you mentioned the makeup of the, the, the hearing panel. The Senate bill would place the executive director of the Nonviolence Institute on the panel, but the Rhode Island Police Chiefs Association argues that The executive director may or may not have the requisite background or experience to sit on the hearing panel. What do you think? Should the head of the Nonviolence Institute be on that panel? I think that's funny because my
1: understanding is that behind closed doors, the police union themselves was advocating for the executive director of the study for the practice of nonviolence to be on the panel. And so I think now what they're doing is that they're pushing for more of their terms to make the final version and trying to use public pressure to do that. But, you know, we're not quick to forget. So I'm pretty
0: dismissive of that. And the Black Lives Matter Political Action Committee here in Rhode Island testified against the Senate bill saying it doesn't go far enough by continuing to wait until criminal cases are over, which can take years before officers can be fired from the department. Do you agree? Should it allow officers to be fired before criminal cases are over?
1: Yeah, I
0: do. We'll have more of our conversation with Senator Acosta after a quick break. In his budget, Governor McKee's proposing $800,000 to provide free breakfast and lunch for about 6,500 public school students who are now eligible for reduced price meals. But it wouldn't provide free breakfast and lunch for all public school students, something you've advocated for. So what do you think of the governor's proposal?
1: I think it's not enough. I think that we need to be having a better conversation in our state about what people should and shouldn't have access to, right? I, You know, I argue in other places that Americans hate poor people. And when we have a conversation about things like universal breakfast and lunch, it all of a sudden becomes about poor people. You know, we're doing too much for them. They're ungrateful. They misspend their resources. It's this blaming of the victim crap. And the reality is that when we're talking about universal breakfast and lunch, it's actually bringing in the middle class. It's bringing in affluent students, right? This is <laughs> encouraging them to also eat breakfast and lunch at school with their peers. Some critics are quick to point out we already cover The breakfast and lunch of very low income students and of some working class students. And I think part of what I argue is we need to be focusing on take up, right? Why do kids in some places have breakfast or not? So I happen to have grown up in Miami Dade County where we instituted universal breakfast a long time ago, and they saw a take up in the amount of kids that were eating breakfast. And it's not just poor and working class students. It's also middle class and affluent kids who all of a sudden now it's here. There's no kind of barrier. There's no, I don't have to put anything in or pay any money. Maybe I'll eat now. And we know that when kids eat, they do better in school. And so if we're so obsessed with catching Massachusetts by 2030, as we claim to be, I feel like this is a pretty simple way of, of getting at that.
0: This came up during the budget briefing. The Office of Management and Budget Director, uh, Brian Daniels, said it would cost 35 to $40 million to provide free breakfast and lunch for all students. So he said we wanted to target the assistance. What's your response to that? Well, one, I think it's worth it. Two, you know, some of these estimates, you
1: kind of want to know what the assumptions are behind them. So I'll use a different example. A few years ago, we were trying to pass the Cover All Kids bill, which is now law in Rhode Island, and it took us over 10 years to get it back. But the first year that we were trying to work on this, they gave us a wild number. They told us it was going to cost $20 million. Mm-hmm. By the time we were working on the bill the second year, then it was more in the realm of $5 million. And by the final form, it was way less than that. And so some of the estimates can bake in assumptions in order to turn the public away from wanting to support something like this. What, what I will say in, in the grander scheme, which is true about our budgeting process now, is that we should be looking for more sources of revenue for the state For me, that's increasing the tax on very wealthy and high income earners. But, you know, that's a conversation that people don't really want to have and try to avoid during an election year.
0: Oh, let's have that conversation. A year ago, <laughs> Massachusetts voters approved a so-called Millionaire's tax, placing a four percent tax on incomes over a million dollars, and it's expected to generate over one point five billion with a B in in uh, the current fiscal year. So, is it time for Rhode Island to consider a similar tax on the rich? Yeah, I think it's beyond
1: time. And I mean, one of the things that I often mention to folks is one, it would impact very few of the residents of our state, but two, we've had tax rates like this within our lifetime, right? Like I, I'm a little young, but Before the Reagan era, the wealthy and high-earning households paid a much greater share into our social system, into the social safety net. And so we can go back to that and probably be okay. All right, Massachusetts is standing to, to make a lot more money off of this. We obviously have a smaller population, so we'll have less. But I think we have way more to gain than we have to lose, if anything, to lose.
0: When Senate President Dominic Ruggiero was on this podcast, he said the richest Rhode Islanders would move elsewhere if the state raised those income taxes. What do you say to that?
1: So we had this conversation kind of off the record, you and I, but I said, you know, what do you think happens when a wealthy person moves and leaves their house off of Blackstone Boulevard? Another wealthy person buys it, right? Who can afford to buy a $500,000, $700,000 single-family home? People who have the resources to buy a $500,000, $700,000 single-family home. And so you might see some movement, and maybe there's some kind of nativist Rhode Island sentiment of keeping our millionaires here, but we'll probably also see some shuffle. And frankly, if the person who makes $1.2 million moves out and is replaced by someone who makes $900,000 dollars a year, then we're actually not making a loss because right now those people pay the same in taxes anyway. And so it wouldn't be a loss for our state.
0: Speaking of Ruggiero, I remember back in 2021, you and he had a disagreement over the Senate dress code. How did that turn out? (laughs) I think it's been fine. I mean, (laughs) I tell people all the time I've maybe been in dress code uh,
1: once or twice per session in the last three years. It hasn't really been an issue. You know, That was much more about trying to have a conversation around other Senate rules. It was interesting to me how much of a chord it struck and the amount of hate mail and angry phone calls that I got. Really? A lot from people not in our state. Um, But, you know, this is part of the broader, I think, culture wars that we're seeing in the U.S., not just about things like dress code, but also about things like what books we should and shouldn't be reading, what courses we should and shouldn't be teaching. Like there is something happening right now nationally. And... I think we need to have more of a transparent conversation about it. But it's a it's a scary historical moment in that way,
0: for sure. What did, what did the Senate rules end up saying in the end? We still have a dress code. Yeah. Um, and we, you've met it once or twice. Yeah, uh, I've
1: never been kicked off the floor. You know, I think there was this fear that people were going to show up in insulting, whatever that means, um, outfits. But, you know, folks tend to carry themselves by pretty standard rules of decency. Like, I'm not, I don't know that anybody would want to show up to the Senate floor in a bathing suit. Right and that not, to, hasn't not today. Yet. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I, I think it was, it was silly.
0: So I know you were eager to uh, for the launch last month of a new pilot program to encourage those who receive federal assistance for groceries to eat healthier. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, we're really excited to finally get that off the ground. You know, we approved that in 2022 and it was supposed to start January 2023, but we faced some issue finding retail stores that would get on board having the technology upgrades to get the program running. And so starting A few weeks ago, you know, if you have snap benefits, then for every dollar that you spend on fresh fruits and vegetables at Walmart or Stop and Shop, you get an extra 50 cents that month to buy more food up to $25. And while I'm super excited that the program is live now, one of the frustrations that I had was... Knowing that it was going to go live or supposed to go live in January 2023, watching inflation kind of wreak havoc huh. on households all across our state, and particularly in my district in CF and Pawtucket, and knowing that there was this pot of money that we had for people to be able to buy more food. But we just didn't have the the technological infrastructure of the retailers on board yet to do so. So now we can finally get that going and hopefully become a national model for how to do this, right? I think getting Walmart on board early, you know, I I have mixed feelings about a large corporation like that, but the reality is they're the largest food retailer in the country. And so if they're able to carry this message to other states and convince folks that, look, this is a way to incentivize eating healthier, this is going to save us the cost of healthcare as people grow older and change their eating habits, then, then it might all be worth
0: it. Is this the only type of program in the country?
1: Yes, it's the only statewide program. So I've had people ask me, you know, there's a farmer's market program, Farm Fresh and stuff like that. In some other places, folks have done it at a municipal level and offset, you know, the cost with municipal funds. But this is the first statewide program of its
0: kind. Finally, one year ago, we had someone you know, David Upeggy, on the podcast, Tell us how you know each other, and tell us about the op-ed you wrote together about Latino teachers.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. So David is is my uncle. He's my mom's younger brother. My mom helped raise us both together, and so we we grew up together. You know, I see him really as, as a big brother. We were both educators, and we try to walk this line of explaining the tension between just wanting to recruit teachers of color and having good teachers, right? And so because of the time periods, like we... Had very supportive and great teachers who weren't people of color. And we also had some teachers of color, right? So I grew up in Miami formatively and I did have some teachers of color. And it's the same issue that uh, conversation that we have with other domains, right? Where like just having police officers of color is not going to get rid of issues of police misconduct. Just having Teachers of color is not going to raise test scores. It's helpful, and that's part of the conversation, but uh, we need to think a little bit more critically about that, and that's what we were writing about in that op-ed.
0: Senator, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall with help from Carlos Munoz and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport. Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly and many more. Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org/passport. That's ripbs.org/passport.